This is the London FinTech Podcast, brought to you by your host, Mike Ballaman, bridging the worlds of suits and t-shirts, of finance and technology, bringing you insights, stories, and inspiration from the golden age of opportunity and innovation happening in London right now. Hi, this is Mike Ballaman, and this is the London FinTech Podcast, episode 211, Brought to you in association with Smart and Enlistedboard.com, and I'm delighted to be joined today by Conrad Ford, Chief Product and Strategy Officer of Alica Bank, who are a business bank, or more specifically, an SME bank, who got their banking license back in 2019. SMEs are, as I'm sure you all know, a super important part of all economies, albeit the sector that the DeVos lot are all too busy attempting to crush. Witness the mass house arrest and closure of many SMEs during the COVID years, while the likes of Walmart, Amazon and UK supermarkets absolutely coined it. But, like everything else in this phenomenal realm, or at least in this phenomenal realm as processed by what passes for the human brain these days, any phrase has fractal complexity. What does SME mean in the first place? We shall look at that and what Alika Bank are doing in terms of lending to this vital sector later. Plenty to talk about, so let's get on with the show. Good afternoon, Conrad. Thank you for joining me on the show today, or rather me joining you on the show today as I came to you. Hi, Mike. Well, it's a pretty am- amazing day because I've not only have I done a, a real-life podcast, one this morning, but I've done two in a day, which is the first time I've been efficient, I think, in eight years, or maybe I did it once before. And the prior guest recording was in Canary Wharf, and I did something new today for the first time, in that I was coming over here and I left just about the right amount of time to get on the DLR from Canary Wharf to Bank and then walk up here, we're in Finsbury Square, only to find out when I got to the DLR that the DLR didn't exist. So the awfully named Elizabeth Nine, which I've never been on in my life, I thought I'd see where that went. And it turns out that the uh, Europe's largest infrastructure project I read while I was uh, waiting on the platform, a £19 billion line, actually whisks you from Canary Wharf to Liverpool Street slash Moorgate, depending on which exit you, you leave in, about uh, two stops and about five minutes flat. So... Amazingly, it actually works and is quite a good thing. Yeah, it's almost as good as the Jubilee line. Yes, well, the Jubilee line is one of the better ones, um, as train lines go. Anyway, I was wondering what we might start talking about. Now, listeners who are completists and who have remembered every episode will remember that uh, in the past you've appeared once or twice wearing your hat of founder at funding options, and we'll come back to what being a former founder is like. But then we had this little sort of covid thing, and I thought a nice way to lead, lead into this conversation today would be to carry on the private conversation that you and I were having after the last time you were on the podcast, when we were walking over the Millennium Bridge. You were very keen to see me off the premises, which is very kind of you, and to make sure I get out of the front door. And I was saying that, and this must have been back in something, oh, I don't know, 17, 18 or something like that. I was saying that I thought that there was a, a terrible wave of sort of insane puritanism coming our way, uh, and you said, oh no, it's just a blip. It's a PC blip, and I think the reason I was quite confident at the time was my kids were sort of sixth formers and that, and you get more exposure. Yours were a bit younger than they hadn't. So in the meantime, what, what you thought was a, a little blip on the road has turned into the, uh, I think, what one might sort of accurately summarise as a complete destruction of Western civilization. So I think I was sort of rather right on that one, and you were completely wrong. Well, I think uh, you're, you're making something of an intellectual leap there. <laughs> Surely not. <laughs> not like you, Mike. Anyway, just teasing you, I think I shall leave it, as I said last time, which is that uh, let's see in a few years' time. So if we're a smouldering heap in Europe and in America in a few years' time, then then I was right. And if we're a a new Jerusalem, then you will be right. Anyway, going back to the other element of that uh, conversation, that you were what is known as a founder. 
then. You're not a founder now. Well, I am still technically a founder. Oh, you founded. That's true. Yes, I founded. Yeah, yeah. I, I am technically a founder. I found, I founded, I conquered. And indeed, I, I remain a minor shareholder in the company I founded. So I, you're always a founder, right? Um, that never goes away. But I'm certainly no longer chief executive of the business I founded. Uh, and I, yeah, I left Funding Options about three years ago. So it's been quite a while now. But uh, yeah, uh, I remain a founder. Well, I thought one useful thing would be to ask you what the pros and cons of being a former CEO founder or whatever the appropriate phrase is, or former sort of full-time entrepreneur, however one might put it. Not least of which, because there's a hell of a romanticisation of founding in the first place, even though the likes of Peter Thiel point out they'd have to be nuts to be a be a founder because it, it ain't no easy journey in the slightest and that whilst the majority of people do the sensible thing and don't found per se although they found their lives and they found their marriages and they found their families so everyone founds and creates something the reality is the vast majority of people who found dead are no longer in entrepreneurial roles and it's actually not something that I've really seen discussed at all as if there's some kind of like I don't know, musical chairs and you're no longer in the game and the sort of the kids that uh, got out of the game have got to go and sort of stand in the corner. But I assume that there are pros and cons to no longer being a founder CEO. Yeah, 100%. And look, I mean, I actually actively thought about whether to get back, on, back, get back in the game as a founder, actually. Um, I was lucky enough to have a few months off immediately after I left funding options. And I, um, that's one of the things I reflected on. And actually, there's a plausible world in which if I'd come up with an idea that I really thought was you know, a banker, there's a plausible world I would have done that. But to answer your question, being a founder is just dramatically harder than you ever realise. It's the other side of the, you know, the kind of what people say is that it's going to take twice the money or three times the money and three times the time to found a business. Well, that's easy to say from the outside in, but when you're the one living and breathing it, that is enormous amounts of trauma. You know, it really does weigh on your mind. You know, it's what I'm basically saying is that the, you know, the highs are higher, but the lows, believe me, are a lot lower. Nothing comes close to not knowing if you can pay your staff, you know, tomorrow. Yeah. You know, nothing comes close if you're in a salaried job um, to that level of stress. So, yeah, I don't miss that. But the other, you know, the other side of it is that, you know, there is an enormous sense of pride. You know, when you walk into the office and, you know, towards the end of my time at Fundy Options, there was like 80 or so people in this amazing office. But above all else, you'd walk in and there's just this energy. And we had amazing um, satisfaction amongst employees. There's a real sense of pride, particularly as a sole founder, you know, that entirely exists because of you. And, you know, you forget that and then just sometimes it just hits you. So, so um, yeah, the highs are higher, the lows are lower. Um, but um, I, I, I now have a proper job. You know, my life is a, my, I say my quality of life is dramatically better. You presumably sleep better. And it's interesting that you said that because I've heard the sort of similar thing in the, in the rare conversation in the past, which is it's not so much the thing that, you get in the media, which is funding and rounds and price and unicorns and, and all that kind of jazz. But it is the social ties and the social responsibility to a bunch of folk who've got their lives out there and whose day is certainly going to be ruined if you sort of have to go outside the door and say, sorry, guys, we've run out of money. It's all over because, you know, there's devastation. Yeah. And I think the, like, the unfortunate reality is that the whole sort of VC industry is, is predicated on it being necessary for founders to fake it till they make it. So, you know, there is this kind of phenomenon 
which is not driven by people's egos. I think it's driven by the structure of, 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 of how the funding market works, right? That we're all meant to go and tell the world how we're killing it, you know? It's a very American thing. It, it is a very American thing, but it, it is driven by the fact that success begets success, right? So um, I spent a lot of time with early stage founders in the time I had off after funding options, actually. And I like to think I, you know, I must have, I must have spent time with more than 50 different founders, early stage founders. And I like to think in a few cases, I really helped them move the business forward. But actually, in most cases where you feel you add value is basically just telling them, you know, that it's actually quite normal to be going through the challenges you're having, right? And if you benchmark yourself against the press releases of your peers, yeah, the only thing to benchmark against their press releases is your press release, and you know how, how much gloss there is in your press release. So I think um, this kind of fake it till you make it mentality, and, you know, with me and funding options, you know, by the time I left the business in a really good state, right, there was no, there was no more faking, yeah? Um, but certainly you had to do that in the early stages. And I think that does kind of create this, uh, this almost envy. And, and I remember had, I had a moment, right? So Funding Options was actually operating in Shoreditch back when Shoreditch was really small, as a, you know, the, the, the tech hub. And I remember going to this pitching day um, of, of fintech startups really early in the journey. I'm not sure I'd even started by then. I remember being incredibly envious of a lot of the startups. And then you move forward, you move forward five years of reflecting and actually most of them had, had died along the way, right? And so there's kind of a survivor bias where you're envious of the ones the that got through. The reality is, right, you know, the simple fact that my business was still around meant that I'd beaten actually most of those 10, albeit some of them had you know, gone on to amazing things. So, um, so yeah, it, it's just the reality of being a founder is it's far more brutal than people realise. Yes, I'm sure that's the case. And I've heard similar stories myself. I mean, it's, you know, in terms of what other people are presenting. It is very much the modern world, which is very American. We've got American tech companies. And in the early days of the likes of Facebook, it slowly dawned on you know, your average teenager sitting at home on their own on a Saturday night, scrolling through their Facebook feed. Apparently, all of their chums were posting these sort of pictures of being at parties and all that kind of stuff. And you'd always feel a loser until you went to a party and you did the same thing. So it is this Facebook uh, a face that uh, people feel they have to put forward. I don't think it was always that way because certainly going back a, a few decades before this country was Americanized to the extent it is, it was rather the antithesis in that you'd say how bad you were at something and that would clearly be a sign that you were confident and you're quite good at it, which reminds me of a tale of um, uh, two cultures clashing when a Tibetan lama, a quite high-ranking Tibetan lama, was doing a talk in America quite a few years ago. And he started off the talk, Tibetans are very modest, saying, oh, I'm, a, I'm a simple monk, I know very little. And someone in the audience said, can't we get someone who knows something? <laughs> so, yes, there, I, I can imagine a parallel universe in which one uh, raises money by being um, modest. Well, honestly, I don't, think, I, I don't think that can exist, right? The venture capital industry is looking for outliers. It's looking for the, you know, the one in ten that will grow ten times. That, that's how the model works, right? So they have to be, you know, they have to be backing businesses where the founder has you know, that extraordinary confidence. And also, they, they must, of course, see something in that confidence as well. Uh, I think it's the nature of the venture capital industry. And, and look, we've benefited as, as an economy from getting that kind of American-style VC. You know, London was nowhere in technology, or the UK was nowhere in digital technology 10 years ago. These days, London is arguably the second digital center in the world, second only to Silicon Valley. So you know, we've got a lot of benefits out of that, um, that kind of American model coming across. And I think we shouldn't lose that. No, I didn't, I didn't say that. And I mean, I go 
even further than, say, 20 years. But it's pretty much the VCs in the current model that we have is definitely the American model because we had 3i from the Second World War and they were around for decades and it was much more the English or or British model. And back in the day, Climate Benson Development Capital, KBDC, that we invested quite a bit of money in, if you went back um, long before the American VC surge over here and the Americanization of globalisation of how things worked, they were much more impressed by an honest conversation with a founder who needed development capital but would tell you all the shit things that were going wrong and what he was going to do to fix them, rather than the appearance that, you know, I'm going to be the next Uber or I'm going to be the next sort of Google of uh, pencil sharpness. I don't disagree, Mike. When you're face-to-face with with a VC, they want you to have a grown-up conversation about the challenges. But what I'm talking about is how you get yourself on the radar of the VC community, which is basically faking it till you make it. In other words, sending out those signals. But once you're in a room, actually, I think a grown-up, a proper, successful VC understands that you have you know you have challenges there are risks you know if you're going to if you're going for a 10 times return right they fully understand that some of those scenarios lead to them getting nothing quite exactly and going back to not all founders remain founders forevermore the other thing the vc market is predicated on is that they expect half the portfolio to go bust another sort of whatever it is a third to to be pretty crap and the tiny bit to do well and uh, we're getting off the topic but both you and i I've heard tales where sort of VCs have actually contributed to that kind of dynamic, investing in various companies in a particular sector and, uh, should we say, favouring some more than the other. So anyway, so that's life as a former, not a former founder, as you correctly um, pointed out. And potentially out. a founder again, right? Potentially uh, a founder again. But uh, as I mentioned, Peter Thiel, he having said that you absolutely have to be nuts to be an entrepreneur, said that the only reason for being an entrepreneur there's only one reason of being an entrepreneur is that there's a change in the world you want to see and you want to make happen, and it's the only way to do it. So I think it's that way round. Um, although there are plenty of uh, people who get stuck in the independent mode and, and are sort of kind of, quotes, no longer house-trained enough to work for uh, somebody else, and they keep serially founding things themselves, largely um, because then they can do what they want. Anyway, so that, that's just a bit of context. There is an overlap, of course, between what sounds like two roles. You've got a chief product and a chief strategy officer role, or product and strategy, and maybe you can explain that. Maybe you get paid two salaries, or maybe the chief strategy officer just says, well, lend to SMEs, at which point it, it probably doesn't take up many hours on the average day. But tell us a little bit about, from your perspective, as funding options for those people who, who don't be listening to the podcast uh, we're very much involved helping SMEs find alternative sources of finance or indeed finance um, in general. Um, maybe tell us a little bit about a liquor bank for those people who don't know about it and then also you know, then a bit about SMEs. Great. So Alica Bank is, is focused on a particular part of the SME population that we internally would call established SMEs. So let's just break that down a bit. In the UK, there's about 5 million micro-businesses, really small businesses, so the SMSME. And there's about half a million or so medium-sized businesses, the M. And then above that, there's a few tens of thousands of mid-sized businesses, as they're typically called, which are like small corporates. So we're focused on the kind of middle ground, the M in SME, which we, as I said, we call established SMEs. So why are we focused on that segment? Well, the reason is because that segment is kind of chronically and structurally underserved by the incumbent banking market. There's a reason for that, because if you're a big high street bank, if you're, well, I won't name names, but we all know the big high street banks, you're going to make the vast majority of your revenue from two polar opposite segments. You've got your consumer segments where you're targeting 30 million homogenous households with simple needs at a very high volume. 
So you've got this high volume, simple segment. And then at the other extreme, you've got corporates and public sector, which are very large, high value clients. Each one is bespoke, but you don't care because the revenues from each client are so big. And you kind of throw relationship directors at them, what they call coverage within banks. The medium-sized business segment is kind of stuck in the middle. So they're quite complex, but they're not as high value as corporate. And just to clarify one bit about the use of the word medium to help the audience understand, when you say medium, what do you mean in terms of, I don't know, annual revenues or number of staff? So annual revenues would typically um, uh, be in the millions or very low tens of millions. Um, So that's kind of what we would consider to be medium. So a a sort of micro-business, a small business, would typically tap out about a million pounds of turnover. So I'd say that our sweet spot is probably a a few million turnover. And the crucial thing here is that the micro-business segment, well, there's really two things. Firstly, those really small businesses are quite simple. They're actually quite consumer-like. There's typically one person authorised on the accounts. When you're lending them to them, you're just as interested in their personal credit rating as you are in the business. They're quite simple. And as a result, the big banks can service those small businesses, micro-businesses, on a consumer banking platform. As if they're private clients. Exactly, yeah, yeah. But the medium-sized business segment, you've got, well, for the technical people on this, you've got opcos, propcos, you've got PSCs, UBOs, operating companies, property companies, people of significant control. You've got directors, you've got registers and trading addresses. You try and put that complexity on a consumer banking platform, everything breaks down. So historically, how the big banks would have dealt with that is they would have had Captain Mannering, those that are not British, they, they have a traditional bank manager in the branch. And that person would effectively just brush over the cracks. So if the cl- customer needed to change their trading address and the system didn't understand a trading address versus a registered address, Captain Manning would step in and sort it out. We've now lost the branches, we're losing, we're losing the, the bank relationship managers. So that kind of sticking plaster of thing, throwing people at the problem is, is, is disappeared and the operating costs just don't make sense for the big banks anymore. So you've got this segment that's stuck in the middle so what we're doing at Alicabank is building a highly focused and dedicated operating model on that segment. And the bit that's missed, particularly by the VC community, investor community, is that they actually really like the micro-business segment. But the micro-business segment's actually economically really small. Yeah? It's barely 10% of the economy. The medium-sized business segment is about 30% of the economy. And from a financial services revenues perspective, it's an even bigger gap. Because a micro-business can't sustain meaningful debts. They're probably going to use personal credit cards for, you know, to buy their stock. A medium-sized business is a significant business with significant assets. So the financial services revenue pool from the medium-sized business segment is much bigger than the micro-business segments. But for some reason, the VC community has yet to discover it, thankfully for us. So is it metaphorically speaking, or maybe even non-metaphorically speaking, effectively the lending equivalent of the funding gap in, in, in equity terms? You fall between the two stools. You're not a fish or a fowl. Exactly. And, and look, you know, we, we all read in the newspapers about the banks not funding small businesses as they tend to get called in the newspapers. The reality is, as always, there's nuance there, right? And it's actually that middle of the market. Now, the example that's always given, which is, largely turns out to be true, if you're a big high street bank, you can either do one £10 million mortgage for a one large corporate company that wants to buy its premises, or you can do 10 £1 million mortgages for 10 small shops, factories, whatever they may be. Yeah. Operating costs for you, because you have an inefficient operating model that's not optimised for the segments, is about the same. Okay? So you will always drift towards the larger ticket sizes. And we've seen this relentless retrenchment over time of the big banks from, from lending to medium-sized, to, to our sort of established SME segments. It's a structural thing, which is why it's such a compelling opportunity. And because the big banks struggle with it, um, we'll come on to this later, I'm sure, but you want to be in a lending pool that the big banks don't want to fight you for because they have many inherent advantages if they choose to use them. And when you say the big banks, the high street banks, the commercial banks, clearing banks, as what? Where 
does one fit in not so much fintechies, but definitely neobanks like Oldermore and, and the spate of banks that got formed a while ago and made it a billion pounds yeah, in, in terms of the competitor landscape? I would characterise them as sort of the first generation of challenger banks in, in, in the SME segment. It's, it's, um, they they came, typically came about after the global financial crisis, where I'm sure we'll get into the second, but actually a recession, as um, uh, unfortunately it feels like we're about to go into, tends to be a positive for new lending challenger banks. Um, because the incumbents are focused on working out their existing portfolios. So, so the, le- the lenders that you're talking about, kind of first generation, we certainly see them as, as within our peer group. But the, there's some key differentiators above all else are heavy use of digital, where we think in the end, to really play in the core of the market, you need to have an operating model that's a, that it is a generation ahead of, the, of, 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 of those challenges and indeed two generations ahead of the incumbents and banks. Yes, and I, I didn't really cover any of them on the the podcast largely because they just seemed to be new banks. I mean, there was nothing particularly fintech about them insofar as they used computers and all that. But you, you, know, you know what, Mike, they're, they're not fintech, but there is a really important nuance that the fintech market has completely missed. Uh, and it's actually, it's been, this has been the death of billions of pounds of, of, of VC capital, right? If you look at the lending market to SMEs, um, if you break down the, let's say, 200 billion or so of lending stock in the UK, all the fashionable VC plays, which are kind of these data-driven digital lenders, are playing in a pool of about 10 billion. So they're playing in a pool of about 5% of the market. The core of lending to SMEs um, is to establish medium-sized businesses. And it's typically asset-backed. So it's typically lending against your property. So you're, uh, let's say you're a shop and want to buy your premises. You're a, warehouse, you're a transport business, you want to buy a warehouse. And it's against your assets, um, which would be your vehicles, your machinery, and also against your working capital, your receivables. And actually, the VC, the, there's these constant attempts by VCs to try and enter SME lending, not understanding the fundamental point that the core of the market is prime secured lending, where you have to have a bank license to be able to access that, because th- these, are, these are not customers that are happy to pay you know, 20% interest rates, the kind of things that are common in the um, short-term unsecured lending market. So, so far fashionable investment uh, VC-backed plays have basically played in a very small pool because they, they're structurally unable to play in the big pool. And this represents the usual challenge that there's a, a spectrum of subdomains of most markets where, quotes, the computer can do it on its own. Uh, I don't know, think of a, an example, but the Canary Wharf, having mentioned Canary Wharf, there are sort of uh, residential buildings nearby and the apartments in there are virtually identical and therefore you can, quote, price them on the computer. The avenue that I live in, roughly no two houses are exactly the same shape at all, you know, diff- different numbers of bedrooms looking in different directions and all this kind of thing. And you absolutely couldn't price that with a computer. So there's a spectrum between whether, where, forget the computer, an algorithm can do it and where you need um, more expertise. And so, you, know, you know what, Mike, it's exactly, it, that's where the magic lies because the problem with the incumbents is they've not taken digital as far as you can go in that segment yet. So, so just to unpick your analogy, right? Your house, I imagine, is worth quite a lot of money. Using human beings at some point in the process, bringing that sort of expert, um, uh, expertise at the final stage of the process can be very cost-effective and certainly lead much better underwriting decisions. But to deploy those human beings, you've got to make sure they're not doing admin. Yeah? They're not collating stuff. They've got all the information they need. So the trick and the magic lies in actually using technology to make sure if you're going to use those human beings for those high-value lending decisions, which are very profitable with the right operating costs uh, because they are large lent loans, the trick is to use technology as much as possible, but then the final um, uh, decision goes with the human being. So it would be, mixing our metaphors completely, it would be a bit like you have a high court judge who makes good quality decisions. 
you don't want him busy finding all the papers for himself. Yeah. You want to sit him down in front of a, a folder, which is in a set way that he recognises it. He flicks through it, said, I've, I've read ahead of you, I've read ahead of you, I've read ahead of you. Yes, this seems to be this. I've got this question, this question, this question, and that's the decision. And because our segment of the market, certainly amongst the incumbent big banks, has been so underinvested in, um, you know, there's, there's still lots and lots of paper-based stuff, right? I mean, a lot of these big banks only adopted e-signature because of COVID, right? So they sat on it for you know, decades, um, uh, literally decades, until they actually finally got around to using technologies that make stuff efficient. Coming back to my structural point about the two big revenue centres of big banks, almost without fail, what will happen every year in a big bank is about this time of the year, the SME division will be coming up with its budget. They will have been told this time round, we're actually really going to invest in SME. You're going to get your £50 million. And then between now and the end of the year, when they fit the budget something will happen, there'll be a regulatory blow-up, um, new regulation, uh, they'll find an anti-money laundering and consumer division, and that money gets taken away. So relentlessly, they underinvest over time, which is why they're so manual and paper-based and unable to compete. Right, so there was a clear opportunity for tech to come in, but as you say, the whole process to be capped off by somebody with expertise and experience who can see beyond the numbers. OK, so in terms of lending to the M. In SMEs, and as you've outlined, combining technology to ensure a good quality flow of appropriate data and then using the human being to cap it off, there are, amongst your cohort of fintech founders back in the day, a whole bunch of ways of doing uh, lending. You can have, as my former guest on the show did, a fund. You can raise a bunch of money and just lend out the money from the, the fund. JDEV was on a few months ago talking about Zopa's entire journey from 2005 to today, from inventing peer-to-peer to uh, to now now no longer being in it at all, having closed the PTP down and uh, become a bank. And then there's, of course, the likes of Funding Circle, who are now listed and uh, remaining relatively true uh, to -to peer-to-peer. I don't know how much is actually retail money going in as opposed to larger chunks of it. These days, none. I would have guessed that. And they're not far from being an eye-walker, who are obviously the people I was relating to before. So... One of the things about fintech, just from a sort of a banking-y, lending-y perspective, is that various models have, have kind of come and some of them are kind of gone and some of them have kind of waned. So why is it that you guys, having seen the analysis you present and the gaps in the market, why did you feel that the right way to address that was to be a bank with all the complexity that being a bank involves in terms of you know, T-size, the balance sheets, maturity transformations and, and all that jazz, plus these days an absolute megaton of uh, regulation. And as I was saying to the prior episode's guest, when Sir Paul Tucker was on the show, he said in the 1970s the Bank of England had no responsibility for banking regulation, and indeed there was none. They kept, kept a bit of an eye on it, so uh, the world has changed a hell of a lot, and it's certainly much more hard work in terms of compliance departments, uh, being a bank in 2022 than it was in, say, 1982. What led you guys to think, ah, okay, there is this gap in the market, Uh, they need a few quid, Uh, if you have technology and people done well, uh, that'll do it well, at which point you've still got the the question of, okay, so why did you then decide the best way or only way to do that well was to become a bank per se, with all the downsides, as well as the upsides, as Jade has covered about Zopa. Yeah, well, we have this unfortunate um, thing that happens at the moment, which is the term neobank um, is often used to describe non-banks as well. So look, if you're offering just a current account or a payment account, um, then there's no point being a bank. Um, there are regulatory structures that allow you to do transactional banking, like current accounts without a bank license. The reason to be a bank is to lend. Yeah. Now, why is that? For those that don't know, it's because a bank is a, can be a custodian of 
retail deposits, individual people's savings. And it pays interest on those and it's able to, the interest it pays is, is much lower than, for example, if you were to get a funding line as a non-bank lender. So it's all about the, being the custodian of those deposits. And it's exactly because you're that custodian is why the regulatory bar is so high to be a bank. It needs to be. Let's be clear about that. So the reason to be a bank is the ability to lend with a much lower cost of funds um, than a non-bank lender who actually, frankly, has to borrow the money from a bank to lend on. So that's the reason to lend. I think the really interesting topic, actually, um, because what I just said is not a new insight, but the really interesting topic is where you can actually build a successful new challenger lender bank. So, So let's just unpick that a bit. You've got to find a lending pool that is big enough to support a bank license. So in other words, that the economics of the cost of being a bank are justified by the fact you build a balance sheet um, with a, cheap cost of fun- a cheaper cost of funds. So you've got to find a big enough lending pool, but at the same time, it can't, it can't be a lending pool that the big banks love because they have an advantage on cost of funds. So a big high street bank will, will have billions of current account money flushing through their accounts that they pay no interest on. So if they choose to fight a price war against you as a challenger bank, you're going to lose, yeah? Because it's the challenger banks that you'll typically see on the um, tables about who offers the best interest rates. And that was the case for Zopa. Zopa was never the cheapest place to borrow money. Yeah. So therein lies the challenge. So, for example, there are challenger banks, believe it or not, that play in core residential mortgages. So mortgages on your house, my house. If you're playing in, in a non-specialist segment, in other words, the generic area of the market, you are inevitably going to get um, uh, um, you fight a price war with big banks and you will inevitably lose. So areas like you know, um, commoditized retail mortgages, bad idea. So you need to find that a relatively rare thing, which is a large pool of specialized lending where the big banks aren't very competitive with you. Because So a good example would be um, you don't want to be in retail buy-to-let, which is highly commoditized. But professional buy-to-let, for example, so people who own lots of properties or own what are called HMOs, these large student accommodations, for example, that's a specialist market. The big banks aren't very active there, so you can still get um, margins. So the trick is basically finding a large market, but um, a large market that the big banks won't fight you for. And that's actually, you know, that's a very good characterization of Alicus market. We talked earlier about why they struggle with our segments. Um, but it is a large lending pool, um, about somewhere between 150 and 200 billion pounds of lending stock, which is plenty on which to build a really successful and large bank. And in terms of the, the lending, you, you mentioned obviously the, the relevance of secured lending. What percentage of your lending is, is secured? Uh, at the moment, a very large proportion because uh, a lot of it is secured. Well, and and we, we prefer secured lending, right? The kind of businesses we're lending to are businesses that typically have significant assets. Um, so um, uh, it's predominantly secured, albeit we don't have anything against unsecured lending, but we don't want that to be, um, you know, that we, cert- we certainly don't see that as being the core of our business. Yes, and I was, I was remembering a an ancient uh, Christmas party at Grosvenor House back in the day when the chairman did his usual Christmas speech, this, when the whole bank would fit into Grosvenor House. And he made the blindingly obvious point, but it did stick in my mind. This was after the uh, uh, one year in which the, the banking division had taken a bath, which is that it's all very well lending money and making one or two percent on it, but then you lose one. <laughs> You've got to do 50 more just to get your, your money back. So one of the challenges of the bank is, of course, what your credit performance is. And I think it's one, one area that they've done amazingly well, actually, in that uh, uh, their credit losses remained uh, relatively low because the margins, uh, even if you find an area which is relatively underserved, you're not taking 10 or 20% out of it. It's not like you can afford one in five of your portfolio. I mean, as we were discussing before, you know, VCs can afford seven out of 10 to go bust 
because the upsides of the other other so big in this sort of globalized model. But if you're making, let's just say, let's make say five, and that must be a reasonable deal. You're making five percent on some secure loan. Well, you know, if one in twenty of those go bust, it's going to spoil your whole year. Well, if it's secured, uh, by the way, important point is secured, not so much, right? There's what's called the loss given default. So in other words, you know, the security is there. I mean, you, you talked about the, the sort of one or two percent. That, that's a good description of residential mortgages. And residential mortgages, the key point there is basically um, uh, if you fail to repay, then the, the, then the bank has your house, right? So uh, the loss given default, in other words, the bit after they've actually used the security of collateral, uh, tends to be a lot less, which is why retail mortgages, for example, tend to be so cheaply priced. Yes, that's true. And we could certainly have a whole episode itself on, which we've never done so far, um, it'd be a bit too techy, in, in, the other, in the banking FS sense, on collateral, because rather like everything being fractal complexity, I mean, Africa, as I was talking about the previous podcast, was fractal complexity, SME is fractal complexity, you can see zooming in, zooming in, zooming in, and collateral is a word which covers a million different sins. And uh, again, having seen various bad bank portfolios over the years, just in terms of life in general, there's all sorts of cock-ups that people don't see coming that uh, they then uh, trip over in various bear markets. Right, okay, so I like your segmentation into sort of more micro, the medium, making a few mil turnover or, or small, small eight-figure numbers. And then above that, uh, the top end of the SMEs, you've got uh, basically the small corporates. I take your point about the micro businesses basically being able to be addressed pretty much as private clienty ways. And then the larger ends just about being caught by the banks, depending on whether the tide is going into the middle. So there's a gap in the middle. You've explained the reason for being a bank. I mean, you know, the one thing that strikes me here, relevant to what Jada's point was about Zopa becoming a bank and giving up the peer-to-peer, which is, amongst other things, the cost of customer acquisition is so high that uh, just having one product to sell them, which might be a car loan, and then they don't need it and don't come back for 15 years, you've got a lot of marketing costs per customer, and you haven't got the cross-selling. So maybe you might just address that issue as it, as it applies to SME uh, lending, because you might have the same thing. I mean, the London Fed, FinTech podcast might grow and you know, become the size of several million turnover, and I need a loan, but I mean, I need a loan for a few years, and then I go away and don't need one. And unlike Zupa, who can now sell you credit cards and a whole bunch of things, do you not need, going back to your neobank model, do you not need a portfolio of products to offer? And then a little bit of wrap-up about how you see the future going in the next few years, which certainly look like quite a challenging one for all segments of the economy. Yeah, so in terms of where we're going, your cross-sell is, is bang on. So it's in the public domain that Alica is, is building a full-service bank for medium for established SME businesses. So um, what that means is, unlike the first generation of challenges in our world, we are actually building a current account. We'll be talking publicly more about that very soon. And we also have a growing range of lending products as well. So we are about building a relationship with a customer, not just being a specialist lender that happens to have a bank license. Our current account is super exciting. I've been personally heavily involved in that from its inception um, when I joined, joined the bank. So we are building a full-service bank. We have you know, something that's been unfashionable for the last few years, but is now very fashionable, is we have very, very compelling unit economics. So we'll be talking publicly soon about our, our financial position, but suffice to say that we are very confident in terms of our economics. And we recently um, hit a billion pounds of lending. Um, so we're on a really strong trajectory there as well. So from an Alica perspective, we're building a proper challenger um, to the big high street banks in this segment. That's what makes us different. We, we, we believe that there's time and need for a real challenger to go out and actually face them. So that's Alica. We are, of course, in very challenging times. 
so typically a new lending entrance uh, or new bank lending entrance, um, uh, that tends to be a positive because the incumbents tend to be retrenching from the market. Um, I say that with no joy, but it does tend to be positive. But obviously, we're all very mindful of the fact that the SME population has already taken a huge strain through COVID. Um, there was a lot of government-backed debt there, which is now beginning to run down if you look at SME balance sheets. And of course, we now have the um, extraordinary situation in terms of input costs, in particular energy costs. So, you know, I don't have a crystal ball, but this is clearly a difficult time ahead of us. Indeed. Well, the one thing about the future is that it seems to arrive on its own. As long as we all keep going to bed and getting up the next day, the world seems to change on its own. And uh, we gradually find out a little bit more every day. So before we wrap up the show, I'd like to thank all you listeners out there, my brand partners, the podcast. Smart is transforming pensions and retirement worldwide. Their leading-edge retirement tech platform propelled them success in the UK. Now they're operating on four continents and working with partners like Zurich and JP Morgan. Find out more at www.smart.co. The enlistedboard.com, your guide to entrepreneurial governance and how you can start making a board an engine of growth today. So you've mentioned a liquor bank once or twice. In terms of your coverage, your Britain only, are you at the moment? And do you have a regional sales managers or something? How, how does it work? Or, or do you all just sort of sit in the city and wait for people to come, come to you? How many people have you got at the moment? And we, we do have some regional coverage. So we have um, some relationship managers around the country and we also have a, a team that face off to the introducer population, which would be the likes of brokers and, and, and accountants. So we, we do have coverage across the country that gives us the ability to actually be closer to the customers. And roughly how many staff? We're coming up to 300. Mm. That's quite a number. And I've lost track, if I ever had a track, on um, how much money you guys raised, raising or raising. Yeah, so at the end of last year, we we announced that we raised uh, a little over £100 million uh, of additional capital. And actually, since then, we've also uh, um, announced some further fundraisers as well. So uh, um, we're on an exciting trajectory. And uh, we will be raising money at some point in the future. Right. Well, that sounds pretty substantive to me. So in terms of being even bigger and better in the future than you are today. What would you like to shout out there in case any of the listeners have it or are it in terms of making you uh, even more mighty? Above all else, what we really would like is talented and ambitious people. You know, we're growing really quickly. From purely self-interested perspective, my world, what I would desperately love is more amazing data people, product people, technology people, design people. Um, so if you're looking to join a sort of ambitious, high-growth business which are with a really great culture as well, then uh, please do reach out. Excellent. Well, as listeners will know, I'm a, a great fan of the uh, SME sector. And as I've mentioned on many podcasts uh, this year, we're one way or another in something of an age of destruction. And uh, going back to founders, founding, the only act of creation in the economic society is by, is by founders founding something better. Uh, otherwise, you're getting incumbents who evolve, as we were saying in your particular case, but it applies across all the uh, other fronts of, of fintech very slowly. So it sounds a fascinating journey you guys are on. Uh, I hope you weather uh, the storms well, and I hope in weathering the storms that uh, you help your clients weather the storms too, and that at some point in the future, the sunlit uplands reappear for the economy. And I wish you and Alika every success in the future. Thank you very much, Mike. Thanks for listening. If you are in need of a non-executive or advisory director with deep expertise, experience and contacts in the worlds of both traditional FS and fintech or unique insight into how to make your board an engine of growth today, contact me at mike at mikeballiman.com. If you just need one-off advice in these areas via clarity.fm slash mikeballiman. We are-
could sit in a bender all day, watching the firelight dance, watching the firelight dance. We could walk in the mountains before dawn, watching a happy moon ride, watching a happy moon ride. Watch the fire light dance with me. 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 Watch the